to have you here. Thank you so much for teaching today. This is the intersection of transracial adoption and racial injustice. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Um, hello, everybody. I am coming from Seattle, Washington, so it's a little earlier for me. Um, but yeah, I'm thrilled. We are going to focus on transracial adoption, but the main key is around race and child welfare. So I understand many of you are not adoptive parents, or maybe you are both an adoptive parent and a foster parent. Um, this certainly will apply across the board. But uh, as Renee said, my name is Angela Tucker, and I am on the far right, the bottom right corner, <laughs> when I was I don't know how old, maybe, I don't know how old I look, eight, um, in my adoptive family. So you see my adoptive parents on the far left and all of my, some of my siblings, not all, but some of my siblings. I grew up in a large adoptive family and then we had many foster siblings, many foreign exchange students, um, lots of respite care. So I just feel like I have an expansive definition of family. And I grew up in Bellingham, Washington, which is in the far corner of the Pacific Northwest, really close to Canada, in a city that was just 1% of the population was Black. I was born in Tennessee, and then immediately placed into foster care and was in with a loving, wonderful foster parent for about a year before being adopted to Washington State. And as we center this discussion today around race, <clears throat> it's important to talk about how my parents, as incredible as they are, were not perfect. They did not know everything about white privilege, white supremacy, and how that fit into child welfare. Of course, they would not completely know how society would come to view black and brown bodies. But the thing that they had that made them extraordinary is just this intense curiosity and openness and awareness and understanding that having a multiracial family meant that we would not be immune to the ignorant comments, the projection of stereotypes, the unsolicited advice. They were really aware of that and so were proactive with us in many ways, role-playing things at home um, so that we were prepared when we had, you know, those kind of intrusive comments come our way, that we had a plan. I'm really appreciative of that. And they also knew that race not only would be a factor in our lives, but that they knew they wanted to celebrate who each of us were. So they did not practice colorblindness, that they were really aware and embracing of each of our cultures, which was also really helpful in terms of our identity formation. So as Renee mentioned, I met, I found and met my birth parents about 10 years ago. I grew up in a closed adoption and my husband, I had asked him to film some of my experience when we finally made some contact and thought that we would find the right people in Tennessee. And that little home video footage ended up becoming a, a 
a bigger <laughs> video and I'm going to share the trailer from that video now so that you can get a little glimpse into my story. Awesome. Tell us right away, guys, if you cannot hear it. Okay. I'm going. Can folks hear it? Yeah, I think we're good. We're good. Okay. I'm going. I never thought that she would probably find her birth father. And she called me up one night. She told me that she thought she found him. You do look like him. We were just like, that's him. That's him. He just stared at me. I don't know exactly what he heard me say. All my life I've been told out of three boys and three girls in the family that I was unable to have kids. It was just a miracle. Sandy and his brother Jay knew where Deborah lived and said, want to go drive by? And so we thought, okay. Angela right away said, Deborah, I think you might be my birth mother. And I could just hear Deborah say, you know, I'm not the person you're looking for. It was just really sad. I just felt so bad for her. may be the one person on this world that I will not be able to figure out. My blood and your blood are the same. I do feel like I deserve to know stuff. I feel like she has an obligation to tell me something. It's hard to see the good surrounding me. The clouds are covering truth in the lies. I owe you all this. <laughs> that I'll never be able to pay. And the sound it makes is an honest song. Our hearts sing an honest song. We all got connected whether we knew it or not. And for the rest of my life, I'll be connected. That makes me want to go watch it again. I probably will this <laughs> afternoon. <laughs> so I have been working in transracial adoption and transracial caregiving as a professional for about a decade. Um, but when this film came out, it became so apparent the lack of discussions that specifically transracial adoptees were being allowed to have with their parents that I was hearing over and over and over again from people kind of a dismay that my parents were open to me talking about this open to me connecting with my roots and so that has really propelled me into a lot of the work I do today which includes this training and then some of the other mentoring work that I do um, and really supporting not just openness, but a deep embrace of cross-racial themes. So this is, um, that's just kind of me in a nutshell, but I wanna move forward to getting into the, the meat, the content of today. So 
I'm going to start by talking just a little bit about some history of transracial, transcultural legislation. And then we'll move into kind of some of the best practices of today. And the second hour will be devoted to talking about racial norms within the United States. So that's the plan for today. And as Renee said, please put questions in the chat or in the Q&A. I will be asking for your participation throughout and you can do that through the chat box. Uh, but we're gonna start with a, a little bit of lecture. So I wanna start by talking about a term. We often hear the term put up for adoption. And I think it's really important that we understand where this language came from and why it's problematic. So in the mid 1800s until the early 1900s, there were about 200,000 abandoned, orphaned, homeless kids in the Northeast who were being relocated to the Midwest through something called the orphan trains. And these orphan trains were essentially like trains. These they would put these kids on these trains. The trains would advertise like what you see on the left-hand side here to say, the train is gonna be coming through your city on this day. Meet us at, like this, this flyer says, the opera house. And when the train got to that place, it would stop and they would ask the kids to get onto the stage and dance or sing or do push-ups or show that they were like physically adept and that's how they would get selected to be adopted. And in those times, it was more about supporting, it was manual labor is what they, they needed. And so it was absolutely a different version of what, than what we think of as adoption today. But that is where we got this phrase that kids would literally be put up on a stage to sing and dance um, and then be chosen potentially. And so it's problematic because that is absolutely not what we do today, right? Um, especially in foster care, parents are, are hoping and working to get their children back, right? We want children to be reunified if at all possible. And even with women who are pregnant and may decide to choose adoption for their newborn, they are in best case scenario, making that choice with consent and an understanding of what's happening. It is not something where we're asking a child to, to dance around. So that is why the language needs to shift. And it is, it is shifting. But when we hear that phrase, put up for adoption, this was the origin of that. Let's talk a little bit about legislation so that we can understand kind of the second half of the work today, like how we got to where we are today. So there, I pulled out just a few pieces that I think are really key for us to understand. Um, the first one is in 1972, the National Association of Black Social Workers put out a position statement where they said transracial caregiving, transracial adoption is cultural genocide. This is like really fierce language. And so they stood kind of 
publicly announcing their opposition to black and brown children being adopted into white families. And the reasoning behind their stance was not because they didn't think white families were equipped to raise black children. They didn't, they, they knew that white families could provide um, basics, you know, food, shelter, love, care, opportunities. But the thing that they, they knew that white families couldn't provide to black and brown children was um, if how to be, how, how to grow up in this racist society. Um, that they knew that since white parents didn't have that lived experience, that they may not be able to imbue that into their child. And the perfect example came just a little while ago, last year for me, when I was mentoring this 13-year-old adoptee, Ethiopian adoptee, who after George Floyd's murder, she, she was hanging out with a friend of hers who is a Black friend and is not adopted. That friend's parents are her biological parents, Black parents. And they were trying to go out to the mall. And they, um, before they went, her friend's parents said to her very fiercely, like with a fervor in their voice, um, when you go shopping, you cannot put the receipt in your bag. You must hold it out, hold it so that everyone can see it as you're walking out of the store. Um, and my mentee was talk, telling me this story, like, you know, her parents weren't mad at her or anything, but they were definitely so fierce and like coming down on her, it felt like. But at the same time, she was like, I didn't feel like they weren't loving, but it was just a stern talking to. And so she went home to her parents, her white parents and said, hey, you know, I learned this thing. Is there anything else I should know? And her parents responded with tears and was like, I am so sorry that you're going to have to go through this. You know, racism is awful. It's just so sad that you're going to have to deal with this. And so my mentee comes to me in a session and it was just like, noticing the huge difference between how her parents responded to this and how her friend's parents responded. And that felt like the, the most perfect example of what the NABSW is trying to say, is that when you have a lived experience, you're going to transmit that, you're going to parent differently than when you don't. Both parents love their kids. So it's not about that. Um, I was, it was uh, striking to me when my mentee asked me, what else am I missing out on? What else am I not learning that I need to know about how to be a black woman in, in this society? That was really powerful. That's so important, Angela. And I feel like that's really the, what we're looking for today. We wanna sit here in our, our vulnerability and learn how to, better support the children that of a different race that we're either fostering or have adopted just out of curiosity guys raise your hand if you are fostering uh transracially or if you have adopted transracially yeah quite a quite a wow few. so many great 
Also, Angela, if you don't mind, I'm going to go back just a stitch. Um, what is the appropriate language now? My understanding was that it was mom made an adoption plan. That works if it's true. Okay. What you know, else could we say? That, yeah, my, my son's birth mom did not make an adoption plan. She wanted to parent, but wasn't able to. So what would appropriate language be there? So that's the biggest thing right now is that there's a lot of like kind of kitschy phrases that we use that sound good, but what adoptees need and want is the truth. And something that's really hard, and I've, I've heard this from a lot of adult adoptees, is that the, their parents grew up telling them things like your mom, your birth mom loved you so much, she placed you for adoption, which is also actually quite confusing. But the other thing is that when they reunited and reconnected with their birth parents, they, some of them learned that their birth parents didn't actually truly love them, um, that there was other things happening in their lives, maybe addiction, that they weren't ever able to communicate their love for them. And so that was more troubling than if they had grown up knowing like, we don't know why you're needing, you were placed for adoption. We don't know why you came into care, if that's the case. Um, th and then sharing other stories from birth parents. So here, a myriad of birth parents explain their perspective. It's, mm -hmm. it's um, the truth is just so important. For me, my parents didn't know. Um, and so, they never made those promises like your birth mom loved you so much. But what they did was just help me learn why she may not have been able to parent from what they knew. So they knew that she was homeless. Um, we didn't know much more. And so growing up, like I remember being five and six years old and working at volunteering at homeless shelters, which was so helpful because I began to really humanize these homeless folks that I was serving food to or whatever we were doing. I remember being like six years old or maybe I was seven and had a conversation with someone and this homeless person told me their favorite color. They were like, my favorite color is, I don't know what it was, green or something. And that really impacted me because it helped me think like, oh my goodness, my birth mom probably has a favorite color too. Like my birth mom isn't just this person who couldn't parent me for some reason, we don't know, but she's also a human. Wow, she has a favorite color. I wonder if she also, you know, has an animal. Like it just made me think of her in a bigger holistic way without any untruths ever coming in, if that makes sense. Yeah, that's very helpful. Thank you. Yeah. So let's move forward. I'm trying to think. So you are probably likely very familiar with the CASA program, or perhaps in Colorado, it's the guardian ad litems. Maybe some of you are even volunteer CASAs or have done that before. The CASA program has some troubling uh, history that has led to where we are today. So the CASA program was incepted as a result of the Child Abuse and Prevention and Treatment Act in 1977. And it included a legal requirement that a mandatory guardian ad litem was appointed to represent a, a child's best interest. So this sounds good. However, the 
it was the first casas were well-intentioned middle to upper class white women who were placed in charge and had a had a legal voice in the kids case of figuring out what's in their best interest and because of cultural differences that best interest ideology that idea lent way for kids to be moved into stranger care so it all of a sudden the people who were there before advocating for a child's best interest were people in their family and the best interest for them was to keep them in their family and to figure out ways to make it work However, because of our implicit biases, our, our unconscious racism that we hold, it was really easy for these well-intentioned white middle-class untrained women to think that a better home was one that looked a certain way um, and was usually in a wider neighborhood. So their ethos was really driving this, which led to a lot of separated kids from their family for the long time, which now we might see ways to reunify a child. Now we might view things as different. Um, to be more specific, we know that when we know we have research now that lets us know that children in poor zip codes, so predominantly zip codes where there's a lot of people of color, may be doing some of the same activities that are viewed as um, problems and ultimately lead children to being removed from their care. Whereas within white and wealthier zip codes, white homes, the same issues are viewed as a private matter. So examples include like alcoholism in a, in a wealthier zip code, we aren't, we haven't been removing kids because of alcoholic parents in wealthy white homes where we would do that in uh, poorer zip codes. So this is partly how we're starting to, to have this major disproportionality within the system. This is another example of the type of openness that my parents had with me growing up was it wasn't just for some of my foster siblings you know they weren't removed just because their parents were neglectful they were removed because of neglect and an absence of resources and support for that family because of history like redlining and my parents really did a good job of of helping me see kind of that full picture because I was really prone to ask my parents, why is it such that transracial adoption is synonymous with white parents and kids of color? And so to answer that question, they had to look at history. Um, and that was really helpful for me. So the next place I wanna talk about is the Indian Child Welfare Act. This is a, a fantastic um, piece of legislation that has been really helpful. The Indian Child Welfare Act became law in 1978 and basically monitored out of home placements in native children, giving power to the tribes to be involved with the custody cases involving native children. So for any uh, agency 
when they found out that a child is native, they were now mandated by law to go to that tribe and let them know. And the tribe then could ask anyone who is in their tribe if they would be able to care for this kid prior to the kid being placed in a non-native family. So this really helped to keep cultural ties, which is so key. And I have a short video that I want to play of Lucas's family. And Lucas um, was adopted into a non-native home and then was actually reconnected with his bio family and his roots. And he talks about why that's so important to him. So I wanna share that video now. It's about four and a half minutes or so. Um, and I just wanna make sure there was no problems with the first video, is that right? Sounds like the sound was good, yeah. Awesome. Okay, so this is Lucas's story. Ordinarily, I would play the captions However, um, the captions aren't correct for this video and it's just a little more confusing to have them on. So um, here is Lucas and its relation to the Indian Child Welfare Act. My name is Lucas Angus, born and raised in Portland, Oregon, enrolled in Esperse, I'm also Cayuse. That's from my dad's side. I'm also Klinkit Haida descent on my mom's side. As far as I know, when I was born, I was immediately adopted. It was pretty much decided for us. The doctor gave me a private attorney's name and I never talked about the end result of, um, of Lucas being born and if I was gonna keep him and raise him. And we just called the attorney. He came in and sat down and I signed the papers and that was, that was it. I was sick. I was, I became anorexic. I didn't eat for, for almost two months. And I got a call from the attorney, and he said that we made a mistake and you need to go to court and give him up again. And I, I said no. That was the beginning of the adoption battle. The woman who adopted me, in our case, she wasn't knowledgeable of the law and ended up with a child that she adopted illegally without her knowledge of that. The legal proceedings to get me back took I think almost two years. I had no idea what I was up against, but I was willing to do what it took. The very first visit, I sat on the floor and he walked around me. And then he just all of a sudden came over and looked at me in the face and then sat down on my lap and he put his ear up to my heart. He remembered my heartbeat. If ICWA would have been complied with so much Time would have not been wasted. Counseling, broken hearts. The adoptive parents and I, we were fighting for something very dear and precious. She did what she had to do, I did what I had to do. The problem with me was, you know, there was too many people that wanted to, to have me and love me. The end result of ICWA is, it's amazing. It's amazing to see it in place right here.
culture grounds you and gives you something greater than just me. It takes away the, the selfishness, but it also, in a way, it, it is kind of all about you and making you stronger. And it makes everyone involved with that culture more connected to, to each other and their surroundings and a better person to offer themselves to the world. My nest person's name is Witska Ilp Ilp, which means red spike elk. My dad and that side of the family was really strong in the Nespers traditions and I have good memories of the elders in that family, making my moccasins and my regalia, my ribbon shirt, and put me on the dance floor. Each piece that I wear is for a special reason. These were made by my wife, and this is my great-great-grandmother's uh, bandana. This is a, a feather from my uncle. This is my medicine bag, has various uh, things that bring me strength. It has love in it and it has the strength of my family. That sort of identity to your culture is what empowers you. I had to give my kids that sense of identity as well. When my first daughter was born, I wasn't really strong in the community, so I started introducing my little family to the Portland Native community a little bit at a time, the powwows and the Native Center. And now my other two kids, they've sort of been born into that. A few years back, the elders decided that as the canoe journeys are happening in Washington and Alaska, it was time to start a canoe family here. The canoe family is our extended family within the community. That's our way of prayer. That's our sacrifice. And it's, you know, it brings us strength too. The elders had that vision and somehow I became an important person in that vision of theirs. The role I've taken as a skipper is one that puts a lot of responsibility on me to steer the canoe and, and so everyone who's paddling has trust in me. I've thought my whole life about, you know, what if I didn't, you know, end up back with my family. Things would have been totally different. I would have been a different person. This culture that I carry would, would be gone. With ICWA in place, we have the protection of our children and our families. It brings strength to our communities and it brings strength to the coming generation of natives to take care of their kids and to raise happy people. So I'd like to ask everybody, and you can put this into the chat, but just what kind of losses would Lucas have experienced had he not been raised in his birth culture? Uh, while they're starting to type their answers, Angela, I wanna ask someone from my team to please link in the chat to our ICWA training. It's on demand. Um, it was taught by Sheldon Spotted Elk um who has taught for us for several years now and it's so so helpful so please take advantage and take that class uh people are saying identity his identity his traditions his connection to his history strong cultural connections and traditions i mean he said it right his his life would have been so different mm -hmm. he would probably be painting and drawing different subjects and wouldn't feel so connected to his culture his history and passed down stories. Yep. Yep. And the other piece that I like about this 
film is that it goes into his children. So understanding the generational impacts of this, that his children are now also growing up understanding this culture. Angela, someone's asking about your thoughts on congressional changes for ICWA that there wouldn't be a preference for indigenous families. It's, um, it, it would be absolutely um, disheartening for ICWA to be changed, um, that preserving native cultures and values is, it's not just a child welfare issue, right? That it's, it's our, the way that our, that America chooses to ignore the rights of certain folks is, is, is a little bit what the National Association of Black Social Workers were saying too, that they, the other, the other piece that they were trying to say is that they felt like child welfare was becoming another arm in terms of breaking and dismantling the black and brown families, therefore disallowing them to create generational wealth. And so the same thing is true for our native families, our native cultures that are trying to stay power to, to keep their power. Right. So it would be really- well, What is the reasoning behind legislation that would change or disempower ICWA? I don't know. I don't know. I'm not versed on what's happening right now with ICWA. I can't speak to that right now. Um, yeah, we'll have to dig into that a little bit. Yeah deeper guys but I do remember Sheldon mentioning it as well yeah um let's for time's sake keep moving forward so I want to also touch on the multi-ethnic placement act which is 1994 was placed and this is almost kind of the opposite of ICWA. This was basically saying that any agency who receives federal funding cannot mandate a class like this prior to adopting a child of color. Um, that the, the thought was that too many children were staying in foster care longer than necessary because agencies were requiring some form of cultural competency. And so they, you, could, you couldn't do that anymore. It could be an option, but it could not be required. This is something that a lot of transracial adoptees are, are fighting against um, because many of us, myself included, feel that cultural competency is as key as ensuring that the kid has three meals a day and a roof over their head. That to not do it may feel like cultural neglect, which has long-term consequences. And we know that one in four adoptees who seek therapy attempt suicide. So that research is by the American Academy of Pediatrics and it's not fully tied to um, not knowing culture, but when we pair that with anecdotal evidence, there's a lot of discussion about adoptees, transracial adoptees feeling like the burden of straddling two cultures was too great to bear. 
Apologies, but I want to go back to the CASA program because I wanted to make sure that if folks wanted to learn more about that, there's a great article called However Kindly Intentioned, um, Structural Racism and Volunteer CASA Programs by Amy Mulzer. And if someone could find that and put it in the chat, that'd be great because it is it goes yep, into sure much will. more detail. We sure will. I, I will say, in, so in Colorado, CASAs are different from GALs. Um, and I wanted to also say regarding Native families, I have helped the state at the Denver powwow in an attempt to recruit Native families. And it is understandably so hard. There is so much hurt and so much distrust there. Um, but the, that is the state has to continue to prioritize rebuilding that relationship. Yep, yep. And so, so similar to the efforts to try to recruit Black families into becoming formal adoptive and formal foster parents, um, that part of the Multi-Ethnic Placement Act does require, although this isn't very well regulated, but requires all agencies to do active recruitment towards getting more black and brown adoptive and foster families. However, many agencies aren't doing it or say it's too difficult. And the reason is similar to the pain that the natives have experienced, especially with regards to child welfare, that many black communities when asked why they wouldn't formally go through and get licensed to be a foster parent, talk about things like, why would I want to give an agency my personal information when it's been used against me for so long? Why would I, why would I trust a home study worker to come into my home and judge my, the way I parent, which there's some cultural aspects that may not fit the standards? Why would I choose to give my social security number, my income, all of those things you fill out, um, and that, that, that deep distrust, which has great, is, is absolutely understandable why, but that's partly where the answer can't just be recruit more right. families, black and brown. It must right. be, we have to change our systems. Correct. Thank yeah. you to Kat for posting that article um, in the chat. And I will also say, Angela, I remember when you were on Red Table Talk, I remember talking about this and Jada Pinkett Smith saying, we actually have been fostering and adopting in the black community for years, mm -hmm. just not through the state, right? right? Not through the government. Which is and, true. There so yeah. families who are informally taking care. And that's also just a, a deeper African tradition in many cultures is collectivist parenting. And that is cannot be underscored. Absolutely. But we also know at the same time, there are so many kids in our system that need, in order to be cared for, must be through being a formally licensed Correct. Right. Yeah. So I want to skip ahead a little bit and let's, um, well, before I get to that, oh, there I are... was hoping this was included. I saw this on your website. This is oh, such good. a great video. <laughs> um, so one, 
one way that if we aren't able to keep kids within their culture, if they are adopted into another culture, ensuring openness is kind of a next best step. Openness can mean a lot of different things. I have worked really hard over the last year and a half to develop a new model for how we think about openness because growing up, I would say that I was in a closed adoption. However, even though I didn't have contact with my biological family, I had a lot of conversations in my home all the time about my biological family. And I've now noticed that me, my growing up in this sort of family is a lot different than my, some of my friends who grew up in a closed adoption where their parents didn't talk about adoption at all and acted as though perhaps adoption did not occur or let's ignore it because it was too traumatic. Um, and so this new model incorporates that. So it's not just contact that construes openness, but that I believe that we can have openness even if birth parents are truly unsafe to have in our home. If birth parents are deceased, you can still have an open adoption that will allow this child to have a healthy identity. And that's through an inclusive or spirit of openness sort of model. So this is a short explainer video for the greater model, which is um, more complex, but we created just a short explainer to show how every single family fits somewhere within four quadrants. So here it is. Just like a map gets you from where you are to where you want to be, this grid can help you plan your adoptive parenting journey. Every adoptive family fits somewhere within the inclusive family support grid, even yours. Let us introduce you to it. In a closed adoption, there is no contact with birth family, and there can be a sense of relief that the child now has a forever family and a fresh start. A mediated adoption is where there is contact with birth family, but the spirit is more of obligation than of a relationship. Why? Well, the adoptive parents may have some underlying emotions like fear or insecurity, which is understandable. In the spirit of openness, contact with birth family may not be possible or safe. However, the adoptive family still engages in conversations about adoption regularly and with ease. Daddy, I'm really missing my birth dad. Oh bud, I'm so sorry. I know this is really hard on you. Hey, do you remember what his favorite food was when you were together? I remember he liked chocolate chip cookies, just like I do. Daddy, what do you remember about him? I remember when you would see him, he was always singing. You both are so musical. You are so good at singing. I wish he could have heard you sing. 
An inclusive adoption is where families have both contact and a heartfelt relationship. The child has access to all the important people in their life. When did she first begin playing soccer? We gave her a soccer ball for her second birthday and it was immediately clear she was a natural. So look within and identify your fears, your dreams, and maybe even your insecurities. These are all very normal feelings to have. Where is your family now on the grid? Where does your child need you to be? We know the lifelong journey of adoption is complex and unique. We at Amara are here to help you on your path. So folks can you know, follow me on Instagram or anywhere, and I'm going to share more about that model. And with the, my team, we'll be doing some presentations going deeper into each of those quadrants. So please stay tuned for more as we're just starting to really uh, describe it and share it out with the world. What's but your Instagram handle for that? Angela? Is Angie Adoptee, A-N-G-I-E Angie Adoptee. Okay, we'll put that in the chat. Thank you. By the way, someone's mentioning, um, and with the, the way things currently are, a, a white family with black children face questions, but a black family with white children would face much more aggressive yeah. interrogation. I don't know if our um, board member, Adrian, is in class today, um, but she adopted a white son and she tells stories about being followed around in the grocery store. Um, one of our favorite, well, they're all our favorites, but one of our favorite foster dads um, of color talks about he carries, he has to carry a card in his wallet because yeah. he's been approached so many times when he's been out with white children in care um, by people, you know, what are you doing with those children? Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So that's just part awful. Of, part of the system that needs to change. There was a, a story of uh, Demarcus Wade, who is a professional football player who he and his wife adopted a a white passing gal, she's Latina, but um, is very light. And he talks about how he was disciplining her when she was throwing a tantrum in a grocery store uh, at two years old. She was just, you know, having a moment. And he was just speaking sternly to her, you know, um, and the police were called on him. And you know, this is his daughter who he loves dearly. So yeah. that's, it is an example. It, it, it's a great segue into this next part of our workshop, which is about racial norms and implicit biases in America and why this is such, but yes, it isn't safe. Um, which is uh, another reason why a lot of black families don't consider transracially adopting, but would absolutely consider uh, fostering and adopting within their race. Um, I think there's another piece of privilege there too that I've heard many black and brown adults say, I wouldn't adopt a white kid because I don't know how to raise them in that culture. Whereas we know many white families, white parents say, of course I will adopt and raise a black or brown kid before even thinking about their culture. So that's another big piece around yes. essentially our norms um, and belief in assimilation, essentially. So we're going to shift to talk about, about race 
specifically in the United States. And I hope we can layer it on top of the history that we've just talked about with regards to child welfare. But one thing I want to just start with is the importance of active listening. So when we talk about race, it's really common for us to get our defenses up and the what I, the way we can check ourselves about if this is happening is if you're a predatory listener, that means that you, you're kind of ready to interrupt a speaker or interrupt someone prematurely and you have a rebuttal ready. Um, this is, I kind of do this when my dad is talking, not about race, but about anything else. And I'm just, I already know what he's going to say. I might have <laughs> something to respond really quickly. And I'm like, jumping on top of him. That's predatory listening. Active listening requires actually you to, to, to listen all the way through. If we're actively listening, we can't respond that quickly. We have to take time to listen and then process what they've said. So we know that we're actively listening when there is a space after they end and before we start speaking. I want us to play a little game. Um, and so this is a short video you're gonna watch and put your answer in the chat. And then the winner will all get brand new Teslas, which is not true. Nice. That's okay. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. You'll get a Tesla. <laughs> this is a test. Let's go forward. So the instructions are to count how many times the players wearing white pass the basketball. Count how many times the players wearing white pass the basketball. How many passes did you count? Type them in the chat, guys. What'd you get? I got 15 too. What are you seeing, Renee? A lot of 13s, 14s, 15s. Somebody said they got lost. <laughs> okay. Rebecca's, I think Rebecca's got the key. The key. Okay. Yep. yep. Which the first time I watched it, I did not get. So 15. So all the people who said 15, you can expect a Tesla in your driveway this afternoon from me. I hope people know I'm not serious. <laughs> did you see the gorilla? I know a couple people did. I did not the first time I watched it. I was so focused on counting. Yeah. There he is. <laughs> so some people saw it, some people didn't. This is a this is a selective attention test. There are a lot of these types of tests, but they're so it's so helpful for me as we go into thinking about racism and as I start to show you some 
of some photos about the norms in our society that I trained you just now to look for, to do a certain thing. Count how many times the players wearing white pass the basketball. That's what you were trained to do. You weren't, tra- you weren't trained to look at what else was happening in the picture, right. which is just like implicit biases. So I hope that people can think about this when, when you may experience feelings of, oh my goodness, I didn't even recognize this was happening. Well, that's because we have been trained in whiteness. Whiteness is the norm. It's the status quo in America. And so we haven't been trained to look at other things. Somebody said he wasn't really in the first video, was he? (laughs) Yes, he was. He really was. I mean, that that is implicit bias right there. Exactly. That's great. (laughs) I love the honesty. So before we get started on getting into racial norms, let me make sure that everybody understands just what norm is. What am I, what do I mean when I say the word norm? And let's do that through talking about social norms. So the image I have on the screen is people high-fiving. This is a social norm because it's an unwritten rule that we all abide by in order for our society to work. Nobody says you have to give someone a high-five after they do a good job, but we all know that that's an appropriate thing to do. So in the chat, if you would write other examples of social norms, that would be great. Just things that we all understand, this is how the world works. This is how our society works, not the world. Other example might be holding the door for the elderly. What are some other examples? Shaking hands when you meet Mm (laughs) pre-COVID, fist bump, Waving, that's a good one. Saying good when people ask how you are, a hug when you see a friend. Yeah, you know, there's a lot of norms in elevators, like stand facing forward. We don't stand facing backward. That would be weird for some reason, even though there's Mm -hmm. no sign. Nodding your head, covering your mouth when you sneeze, smiling as a greeting. Yeah, that with uh, greetings, there's a lot of like, hi, how are you? When you're not really asking how they're doing, but we do that anyways. Eye contact is something that we do in America. Saying good morning, staying on the right side, passing on the left. Mm-hmm. Having personal space. <laughs> Another example might be... Um, you know, giving up your seat on a bus to a pregnant woman or um, an elderly person. I, yeah, those are great. So take that same approach and now we're gonna put it on with the race lens, unspoken norms. So when we do that, let's think about Let's start with TV shows. It is really common that TV shows feature white people who are hetero and thin. You know, I even think about, all these shows are a little older, Sex and the City, Seinfeld, Friends, but we, we have a few shows that have some more diversity. However, things like Blackish, um, I work with the show This Is Us, 
there's a little diversity there, but the diversity is such that the character who is a person of color, a lot of their character is based on the fact that they're a person of color. So do we have any shows where there are people of color, but they are fully realized characters in the sense that they aren't there just to exist to talk about race or to be a punchline about race? Not so much. Right. right. So like in This Is Us, it's Randall's whole storyline, right, is exactly. the fact that he was the Black child adopted into the white family. Yeah. Um, as you're watching TV for the next few days, think about that. Like part of the exercise here is for us to start to understand um, the norms and then to be, once we recognize them, then we can act upon them. So recognize how hard it is to find characters of color who are fully realized and they are more than just a person who talks about race. Somebody says girlfriends or good girls for people who know those shows. Great. I don't know them, but that's fantastic if that's the case. So other examples of, of racial norms. When you type into Google unprofessional hairstyles, you see kind of kinky, coily, curly hair. And when you type in professional hairstyles, you kind of see smooth, Eurocentric hair. And wow. this is there's a strong racial divide, right? And we know that in California, they just recently had to pass the Crown Act because black women weren't allowed to wear their hair natural. Um, it was seen as unkempt, unprofessional. We know that black and brown women in news, um, like the Today Show and stuff that they had Previously, in their contract, it was stated that they could not wear their natural hair, and this is still being challenged. So a norm is that this is, um, this is, this is what is seen as professional. Um, the, when we think about advertising, this split picture does a great job of it, where we have Beyonce on the right, in a L'Oreal ad and then Beyonce on the left and she uh, is on the red carpet and you can see that her skin has been lightened drastically in the L'Oreal ad and that's because of colorism that we have a preference for lighter and brighter skin that the lighter your skin is as a black or brown person the more closer you are to white the more, the more, the prettier you are, the more successful, the, um, that this stemmed from the brown paper bag test, which was a stark example of blatant discrimination, but essentially it was saying in order to enter an institution like a fraternity, a sorority, a church, your skin had to be lighter than a paper bag. And so this led to how we see things today, which within the black community is very strong. I remember meeting my biological sister for the first time and she said, you're so lucky you're a high yellow. This was one of the first things she said to me. And I actually didn't know what that meant at the time. And so I said, thank you, which is inappropriate. But actually what she was saying is your skin is so light. Therefore that's why you're successful. And 
pretty and all of these other connotations. It's why our Instagram filters that we, sometimes I use, and I, I wish I didn't, but I still use them. I use Instagram filters that might brighten me up. Um, we're going to watch a video in a little bit of Lupita Nyong'o, who is dark-skinned, who talks about colorism as well. But it is rampant in our advertisements. It also traces back to the to slavery that the color of your skin and how dark someone's skin was mattered in terms of what jobs you would be assigned and the treatment they would receive. Um, in this picture, I put together two Amazon um, Amazon things of selling this dollhouse. And there's a dollhouse with black dolls played with by a black girl and it is $37.99. And then the same dollhouse, but with white dolls is double the price. You know, there's a lot of algorithms and ha stuff happening there. But the important thing I think really for us to think about is representation and how this feels for our worth. Um, so noticing this definitely helped me help to reinforce um, how society views us. It's also, it also speaks to some historical pattern, patterns um, with regards to how the advertising works, who they're centering, um, that people who may buy that black dollhouse may be from poorer places because of history of redlining and all of that. People are mentioning the the um, reviews and ratings are much lower as well. Oh, <laughs> yeah. I think I pulled this. It might be a year ago, so I be I should go back and see what what it looks like today. But yeah, another example is a a a workbook teaching kids how to write. That you know, this is a published book. It went through a lot of hands, lots of meetings in order to get it published and printed. Yet we see the words sad and angry are paired with the black kids, happy and proud are paired with the white kids. This is a, a, a great example of implicit biases and how just like the gorilla in the video, people just didn't see it. It's problematic when we think about our youth, especially transracial youth who may be living in homogeneity and we see it, right? If we see the people who look like us and see uh, those words attached. This really echoes the Clark doll test, which I want to share to make sure everyone has seen. And I also want to just reiterate that I'm not sharing these for us just to have a reaction of like, oh my goodness, because this is happening all around us all the time. So I'm sharing this to say, you, you may have seen this book. You have seen all these videos. You've seen these TV shows. Now your next step is to see it through this lens. Um, let me go back and let's play the Clark Doll test so that we can see kind of how deeply embedded this is and how our kids aren't immune to racial stereotyping. 
So this is a short, maybe a minute and a half. Which doll is the black doll? And which one is the white doll? Which doll is the pretty doll? Which doll is the nice doll? Which doll is the bad doll? Which doll is the nice doll? And which doll is the bad doll? And, well, and why is that doll pretty? Which doll is the ugly doll? Why is that doll ugly? Because he, because he's black. Which doll looks most like you? Like me? Yeah, which one looks like you? And that one. Okay. Yeah, so this is a... Uh, I'm gonna get back to the slide we were on. This is, that video is uh, a test that first was conducted in 1939 and it has been replicated in all over the world many times and the same result has, has it's been valid, validated. Um, it is absolutely heartbreaking and it's also important that we get beyond that though because we need, to change our surroundings and make sure that kids have representation around them. We need to interrupt when we see things like this book by writing to the publisher, you know, that these are the things that'll ever so slowly help change our systems. Um, let's go through a few more. So I'm thinking about, I love asking classes if anyone has ever had a mannequin that wasn't peach skinned? Has anyone ever had one in their science class? I think CPR classes maybe are starting to have a little bit of diversity in their, their mannequin dolls, but has anyone had a, a science class when they were in high school that didn't look like this? Nope, everybody had this one. Yeah, and so to think about your seeing the world through your kids' eyes, all of these examples just reinforce that you don't belong here. And they're ever so subliminal, which is what can make it really hard for us adoptees to speak up and say, perhaps we don't feel like we belong. I think adoptees and, and kids of color in predominantly white spaces are really good at fitting in, but Brene Brown talks about the difference between fitting in and belonging. And she says, fitting in is done when we survey the scene around us, we assess who's there, and then we change ourselves because of that. And belonging, on the other hand, is when you don't have to change a single thing about who you are to be there. I think a lot of us fit in, but to belong, that means that these sorts of things have to look different. And the belonging is what's key. And I do believe that's what will help 
identity and decrease suicide rates once we can get that far. This was a, an ad, <laughs> Dove did a series of ads in 2017 like this, where they said, hey, use our soap. You might start looking like this. After you've used our soap, you'll look like this. And this was, um, so they did this ad and then they did this ad. Use our soap. Before you'll look, again, we have kind of that frizzy hair, um, dark skinned. Afterwards, you'll come out with this European style hair. <laughs> so again, this is an example of something to where this was in every magazine you picked up back then. So you may have seen it, but did it register? Um, and then, you know, the next question is what do I do with it? And it depends. Um, and this is part of my uh, second part of this. I usually teach this workshop in three parts. And the second part is all about how to interrupt microaggressions like this. Um, and there's a lot of different strategies. For this one, a lot of people took to Twitter um, to, to call out Dove, who then followed up with a apology. <laughs> but it, it is pretty shocking to think that these are happening all around us today. I'll be in touch, Angela, because we've I've actually been looking for a class on microaggressions. Yeah. Yeah, that it would be great to do. The second part of this series is it's adoption related microaggressions too. So how do we interrupt when people come up to us and say, where'd you get them? How much did they cost? That type of thing um, with a response that is empowering to the adoptee and centering the adoptee. So yeah, I would be so glad to do that second part. But this part is all about the awareness. Um, it is important to know that there are some changes being made. So I share this because the Band-Aid brand just came out with new skin tones. However, there are black owned companies that are have been doing this for a while, but haven't gotten as much attention. <laughs> so I urge people to look at those other companies first, perhaps, but um, you know, it's taken a long time for people to recognize that Band-Aids maybe don't just come in peach and that nude isn't synonymous with peach skin tones. Um, okay, before I get go to the next piece, I want to just stop and offer time for questions or thoughts on some of these racial norms. Is there anything, Renee? <laughs> Someone says Crayola has a quote unquote flesh color. Is that still the case? <laughs> I wonder. I know that they had um, advanced, I'd seen like a, a flesh tone box. So they actually had like a hundred crayons that were all different colors, which is awesome. So I think they do have, they have advanced. Yeah. I, I don't think they use that word flesh anymore, which is fantastic. Um, 
Right, it says here the color has been renamed. Yeah. As we continue on, Angela, for the last 45 minutes or so, um, can you talk a little bit about how your parents came to help you celebrate your culture? Things yeah. we can, once we find that awareness, and I realize a lot of this will probably be in your next couple of trainings, yeah. but things that, things that we can do now to kind of start working towards, yeah. towards that. Sure. Yes. That's absolutely uh, another two hour session, but in, in a nutshell, I mean, it, representation was everything um, for me to not just see, for me to not just know other transracial adoptees of color, but to know just people of color, because I found that my mentality was becoming such that I was feeling like all black people were adopted and all white people were the adopters. And so being able to have friends who weren't adopted and people of color was really helpful for me. But that's the, the time having friends of color. I remember uh, I had my hair in cornrows and because it was a cute style, I loved it. And it wasn't until I was in community with other black folks that I learned something about cornrows, which was that um, the reason for the designs isn't just artistry, but it started with, it started as a way that people, that slaves communicated ways to escape through creating a map as the cornrows. So I learned that and was just excited, amazed, felt so proud. And that was the start of me realizing that I didn't just wanna tolerate my blackness, but to how do I celebrate it? That, wow, such incredible, like, intuitive way to survive. And that's, that is different than just going to restaurants um, and like once in a while going to like a black fashion show, but to be immersed in the culture and learn certain things helped me to start to really embrace my blackness and not just kind of tolerate it. Um, I think there's also smaller things. I remember Band-Aid, for example, my parents did uh, like snail mail, the Band-Aid company when I was little. And even just that, even not having a result, it's not like, you know, Band-Aid wrote back and gave us a box of this kind of Band-Aids, but I just, it helped me feel seen knowing that my parents noticed this and noticed me and then acted. So there was a piece of like, they understood the limitations that they weren't gonna be able to change systemic racism, but 
that they helping me feel seen was knowing that they noticed this and then made some actions on my behalf. Um, I know that this workshop can feel icky perhaps for a lot of white adoptive parents or white foster parents. And I hope that's not the case because the, the, my goal is not to shame or guilt anyone, um, but it's to make sure we are aware of our own responsibility. If you are, if you have a child of color in your home, in order to help them thrive, you need to be noticing these things, which may not have noticed before. Absolutely. Um, and then, Absolutely. and then be able to talk about them. And th that, that part is difficult, which is why I love making like part two is very interactive because you start to be able to speak out loud. Some of these things, which can be, maybe you read about, but it's different thing when you say it out loud. Um, Sorry, I was going to ask you because you initially you grew up in a pretty white neighborhood. Is that yeah, true? Predominantly white city. Yes. Okay. So somebody was asking earlier. I saw what your feelings are, or if you would have preferred if your family had moved. Yes. To a yeah. more diverse area, or how how you feel about that? Absolutely. Yeah, I've had lots of conversations with my mom and dad about this because I absolutely believe that neglecting that being raised in homogeneity did not allow me for a lot of growth in that area. It was something I had to seek out as an adult, which is true for a lot of transracial adoptees and it, and it doesn't feel great. My conversations with my parents were um, about how they, they adopted and fostered lots of kids with disabilities, including myself when I was uh, born and then in foster care, they really weren't sure about my medical situation and actually diagnosed me with spastic quadriplegia. My parents have other, other kids who have cerebral palsy and uh, my brother has fetal alcohol syndrome and just kind of the range. And they had an incredible medical community around us. I also am hard of hearing. Um, Anyways, we all had a lot of needs and the medical community they created here or they found is incredible and helped us thrive. And so my parents really made a decision that that was where they would focus their energy um, and give up that racial component. And so I just having that conversation was really helpful. And then I would then ask, well, why is it such that the great medical providers are in predominantly white cities? You know, why, why can't we have both? And so that again, led to conversations about our history that I really appreciated. And my parents didn't remove themselves from that conversation. So they said, you know, we are complicit in this supremacy society of whiteness because we are choosing, you know, to kind of live this segregated life. And we aren't um, choosing to be in a place where we can uplift and empower black doctors and things like that. And that honesty really is what's helped me today. So I didn't feel like they were making things up or making things sound better than they were. And it helped me to understand 
transracial adoption so much better. So I think there's a lot of times this desire to just be like, how can I just, how can I imbue a sense of racial belonging in my kid? It's just not that simple. And I think that's actually a great segue into this next video by Lupita Nyong'o, who is not an adoptee, but she talks about belonging and how difficult it was for her as someone who is so dark skinned. So let's watch this and then continue this conversation after that. Um, this video is about five minutes long and halfway through, um, she says a name of a person and I think it can be hard to understand what she said. So I like to just tell people before we start it, the name is Alec Weck. Um, so I'm just saying that so you know when it comes, what she's referring to, but let's listen to her talk about colorism and belonging and then continue this conversation after. I received a letter from a girl and I'd like to share just a small part of it with you. Dear Lupita, it reads, I think you, you're really lucky to be this black, but yet this successful in Hollywood overnight. I was just about to buy Densha's whitenicious cream to lighten my skin when you appeared on the world map and saved me. My heart bled a little when I read those words. I could never have guessed that my first job out of school would be so powerful in and of itself and that it would propel me to be such an image of hope in the same way that the women of the color purple were to me. I remember a time when I too felt unbeautiful. I put on the TV and only saw pale skin. I got teased and taunted about my night-shaded skin. And my one prayer to God, the miracle worker, was that I would wake up lighter skinned. The morning would come and I would be so excited about seeing my new skin that I would refuse to look down at myself until I was in front of a mirror because I wanted to see my fair face first. And every day I experienced the same disappointment of being just as dark as I had been the day before. I tried to negotiate with God. I told him I would stop stealing sugar cubes at night if he gave me what I wanted. I would listen to my mother's every word, sitting right there, and never lose my school sweater again if he just made me a little lighter. But I guess God was unimpressed with my bargaining chips because he never listened. And when I was a teenager, my self-hate grew worse. As you can imagine, happens with adolescence. My mother reminded me often that she thought I was beautiful. But that was no consolation. She's my mother. Of course, she's supposed to think I'm beautiful. And then Alec Weck came on the international scene. <laughs> A celebrated model. She was dark as night. She was on all the runways and in every magazine. And everyone was talking about how beautiful she was. Even Oprah called her beautiful. And that made it a fact. <laughs> I couldn't believe that people were embracing a woman who looked so much like me as beautiful. My complexion had always been an obstacle to overcome. And all of a sudden, Oprah was telling me it wasn't. 
it was perplexing. And I wanted to reject it because I had begun to enjoy the seduction of inadequacy. But a flower couldn't help but bloom inside me. When I saw a lack, I inadvertently saw a reflection of myself that I could not deny. Now, I had a spring in my step because I felt more seen, more appreciated by the faraway gatekeepers of beauty. But around me, the preference for light skin prevailed. To the beholders that I thought mattered, I was still unbeautiful. And my mother again would say to me, you can't eat beauty. It doesn't feed you. And these words played and bothered me. I didn't really understand them until finally I realized that beauty was not a thing that I could acquire or, or consume. It was something that I just had to be. And what my mother meant when she said, you can't eat beauty, was that you can't rely on how you look to sustain you. What actually sustains us, what is fundamentally beautiful, is compassion for yourself and for those around you. That kind of beauty, <laughs> excuse me, that kind of beauty inflames the heart and enchants the soul. It is what got Patsy in so much trouble with her master, but it is also what has kept her story alive to this day. We remember the beauty of her spirit even after the beauty of her body has faded away. And so, I hope that my presence on your screens and in magazines may lead you, young girl, on a similar journey. That you will feel the validation of your external beauty, but also get to the deeper business of being beautiful inside. That, there is no shade in that beauty. Thank you. So I love sharing this speech because I think a lot of us, a lot of parents think I am going to tell my child that they are so beautiful, like 10,000 times. You're so beautiful just the way you are. You know, we say that over and over. And I love that Lupita acknowledged that her mom told her she was beautiful, but that didn't matter. I mean, it mattered, but it didn't allow her to think that she could then become successful on the world stage. What she needed, in addition to her parents being like, we love you, you're beautiful. What she also needed was to see someone else that looked like her who was accepted in society. And that is the key for transracial adoptees. We need to see other people who look like us doing things out in society that are accepted. Um, that is really what's gonna change, help us with our identity. So I wanted to have some folks just write in the chat, specifically their reaction to what Lupita said when she said, I'd begun to enjoy the seduction of inadequacy. What did that mean? accepting her fate, quote unquote, as less than, or was it liberating, accepting herself for who she is? 
Hmm. Okay. What else? Had begun to enjoy the seduction of inadequacy. Someone says she could reframe what beauty is and be proud of it, even if the world didn't. And to enjoy the seduction. Someone says she accepted that it was okay not to be beautiful. It's tricky. I, I have found a lot of people of color absolutely understand what is being said here in an instant. And it's harder to understand if you're not a minority. One example that I often give is when I was in high school, this was the first time that I decided to wear my Afro. I was really nervous because it's different, right? Sure, it's beautiful. And, but at that time in high school where all I wanna do is not be different than everybody. I just wanna be the same and fit in and not um, attract attention. I, so in my home, I knew that Afros were strong and beautiful, but when I went to high school with it, I remember getting up and going to the bathroom and being shocked when I found pens and pencils and twigs that were stuck in my hair, that over the course of the day, people had been sticking things in my Afro and I didn't know. And I remember being like having a split second decision to make. When I looked at it, I, I was humiliated and embarrassed for two seconds. And then I thought, well, it's attention. And at least I'm getting some attention. Why don't I just go back to class with it in there and act like I'm cool with it, act like I knew it was there all along. And so that's what I did. And that's what I feel like is being stated here is like figuring out a way to enjoy the fact that you're not normal, that you're different, that it's kind of seductive being different. When I talk to, to young kids about being adopted, they're like, some of them say, yeah, it's great because I'm different and I get attention. A lot of people ask me questions. And simultaneously then we'll talk about how it's hard because we're different and people ask a lot of questions. I think there is a, a desire for us to, for those of us who are kind of seen as exotic to make it feel okay in our bodies. And this is one way that I think a lot of us do that. And it's very subtle because it can look like we just are really resilient when in fact what's going on below the, below the surface might be a lot of repression of anger. Um, and, and I think that is what happened in my case, that it was really seen as a positive. Um, so that I think is perhaps an example. Given that example, I'm curious what people think now about this quote. Are there additional comments, Renee? Not yet. Okay. Well, certainly think on it. You know, it's um, external 
approval, unfortunately, it matters. It's unfortunate and frustrating, but it matters. Okay, so the final thing I want us to do today is to watch another video. Um, I had other examples of racial norms within politics and let's see the entertainment industry. And then this photo that I love, which just- I love that picture too. Dreams, representation matters. This boy who couldn't believe that he shared a same hair texture as Obama. Um, and you can just see in his eyes the recognition in that moment. And I do believe this is what is gonna allow this kid to believe that he can be president someday, that he sees someone that looks like him who is it. So that, um, with all of that said, I want us to kind of finish up by watching a story that kind of brings all of this together. So we're, it brings back some of the historical elements that we talked about. We are going to see a little bit of, um, a lot of openness and inclusivity. This family also adopted their son through foster care. So there's a lot of um, discussion about the difficulties for being inclusive. Uh, and so I want us to finish with this. It's a a longer video, it'll take us kind of towards the end, and then we'll have a little bit of time to discuss it, and then that'll wrap us up for the day. Okay. Let me present here. Okay. Adoption day wasn't really the happiest day. You were emotional. I was super emotional. <laughs> For so many years, I had always been a believer that adoption is the best thing in the world, right? And then I kind of realized along the way, as I got older, that yes, adoption can be a positive thing, but it's so deeply filled with trauma that I never really evaluated that side of things. Hey, I'm glad that Nico's out of the system. So I was happy that Nico was becoming my son legally, but I always felt that way. I was connected to him that way already. But with that, this loss happened of a mother not having any legal rights or a child. I never really gave up my rights. They were taken from me, from him being in the system for so long. I knew it was coming one day, but I just didn't know when. When I met Nico, I didn't know he was in foster care. One day I was just in the daycare, hanging out with the kids. And Nico and I just kind of had like a really good bond. 
like I felt really attached to him and I'm not sure why I did. I just did. And I was just like, man, this child is like really like something about him is just with me. I don't know why. Like it's nothing like this has ever happened to me. Right. So you like, played with hundreds of kids. Right. You cared for right. lots. Yeah, yeah. lots. Bruce is really the one that was bringing up foster care. He was bringing up this idea of expanding our family in this way. And I was just like, no, mm -mm, I don't. I remember just at that point, I was just very, not all adoption is good adoption. I think I was coming to terms with the complexity. But ultimately, I didn't know if I would be good at the reality of how difficult adoption is and even foster care, the real difficulty of foster care. Happy birthday! Let's go! Let's go! Yeah! Happy birthday! Hey! Happy birthday, Nico! I've always wanted to foster. The goals were unification, so, you know, it would be, we didn't have any kids at the time. It was like, oh, you know, we, should, we have space. We have, yeah, we could care for kids. Like, we care for kids every day. And then they were like, well, if a goal is changed to adoption, would you guys be open to it? And we were like, yeah, sure, we, we'd be open to it. So it kind of happened like that. So it was just like, whoa, like this kid is now at my house. And yeah, so. Bruce and I had to have a lot of conversations because I am an adoptee and he is not. And so in the beginning, it was me trying to educate him on what that trauma looks like of losing your first family. But I think that there was still this concept of permanency where he was still probably, like a lot of foster parents, was still believing that he would grow so attached I was trying to give him insight and saying, if you think that this will lead to permanency with Nico being in our family, we have to get out in front of everything and make decisions early on that allow for the possibility of openness. Dr. Seuss, green eggs and ham. I do not like green eggs and ham. I do not like them. Sam, I am. Would you like? When I got pregnant, I was very grief stricken in the probably the first trimester of my pregnancy because it was just so um, overwhelming. Really, just made me have to think about my Oma, my Korean mother just everything that she must have went through as 
I was <laughs> growing inside of her and then knowing ultimately that she would make the choice to, to give me up. When I became pregnant, all I could see was pain and suffering from her. On her part. On her part. Like whether she chose to relinquish yes. you or yes. something else happened right. where she had to. Right. What you were experiencing was like... It was just deep, deep sadness at first, you know, and it was, it was weird because it was simultaneously a lot of joy. I was so overwhelmed and happy about being pregnant, but it was really deeply saddening. Now that Zephaniah is here, he, he's like the first person that you've ever seen that looks like you. Yeah. And he really looks like you. Yeah. <laughs> when he came out, like I just, I knew, I was like, wow, my genes are very strong because I looked down at his eyes and I looked down, you know, just at his little face and I just knew, I was like, this is, this is part of me. Well, Nico is my second child. What you been doing? I was going through some rough times when he came into the world, but I had him up until two weeks before his first birthday. And then that's when everything happened where he got took from me. I was using or whatever, but that like wasn't the issue part of it. It was the fact of me being homeless. I've been homeless since 2011, like bouncing around from different houses and stuff. Well, we met Rand really briefly at an interactional. So that's where psychologists sit and evaluate your interactions with the child that is potentially going to be adopted. It's a part of the termination of parental rights process, actually. They want to see they want to how the child is bonded. They wanted to evaluate Bruce and myself with Nico. And then later that day, they wanted to evaluate Brianne and Nico. So our wow. first our first meeting like was really difficult. How can you in that moment form, form any type of relationship when you're already like us versus her? That's where I felt as though that's where the system has to change because that shouldn't have been our initial meet. After that, the next interactions we had were in court. Yeah, also not a great place no, to build a relationship right. because we're talking about issues that are related to, you know, all termination of rights. Yes, of the term yes, exactly. That's of severing that tie. And then the judge <laughs> wants to know who we are and that, you know, and it just, again, becomes this, we're here, she's over there. That might've been a little bit of a rough start, but Nico, <laughs> needs so much more than my discomfort. When I just recently went to jail this last time, within that time, they let me know, like, we did the adoption. You and got it, adopted it, when you it, were in jail. Yeah, and they was like, we did the adoption, but it happened so fast, we had to hurry up and do it or whatever. And I was like, I mean, that's cool. Like, I knew it was coming one day, but I just didn't know when.
The Act 101 in the state of Pennsylvania is basically allowing for mediation services for pre-adoptive families, you know, that are really moving towards adoption and then the biological family. To meet together. To meet together in a very professional, neutral space. The purpose is to get together and have a conversation to potentially build relationship that will help the child in the future. And so I had like just prepared myself because I just didn't know if she was coming in wanting to fight or like what. And I wouldn't blame her if she wanted to fight because that's her son. And I remember the first point of connection that I made with her in that conversation was that I value you as Nico's mother. And I know that that role will never ever be taken away from you in the sense of like what you are in his heart. There was a moment of relief in her because I think that she had come ready to say, I am his mother. To fight to be I am his mom. Right. And I told her, I was like, I'm adopted, Brian. I know more than you would think. Yes, I know about, what it's like to have two moms. About having two moms. But when we opened it up based on that premise and gave back some of the power that had been stripped of her, she became so much more open to hear what we had to say. That was a very hard situation for me right there. Until me and Miss Emily, Mr. Eric too, we all went out to eat and we talked and they said we would never keep him from you. We want you to be a part of our family just like he is. Yesterday when Brianne got here right. and Nico ran up to her, right. how does that make you feel? Um, just to see that she's like, you know, she, uh, she, she can be with her son, you know? Like that's really, that, it, it makes me so happy. I know that Nico sees such a strong role model in his dad, but he knows that he can feel emotions too. It's been really a pleasure to watch Nico's need for his dad and my husband's need for his sons in that way. Kids, you're, you're shaping them, you're bringing them up, you're helping them grow, whatever, but really they're changing you more than you're changing them. It's been a rough road, it really has, but I'm grateful for Miss Emily and Mr. Kirk. They don't try to keep Nico from me. They try to make sure I'm involved in everything that he does. No matter what's happened in the past, She's Nico's mom. I'm raising him to honor his mother, and in that, I have to honor her too. We're mothers to the same child, and we just have this sisterhood almost. And that has been built over time, and we just, we love each other. People think that they own kids, but I don't believe that. We're here to steward children. More love is not hurting anyone. People are like, oh, well, they're a safety risk. I'm like, you can't meet at a Starbucks in a public area. There's always a way. 
but it's only if you really want there to be a way and you're humble enough to hear your child call someone else mom or dad. Bruce is just, you know, his arms are like just so endlessly big. <laughs> like literally, <laughs> like, literally and, and figuratively. <laughs> He is really the guiding factor when it comes to the embracing and the inclusivity of everything. At the end of the day, he knows he's loved. He's loved. Just more love. Okay, so I wanted to, I like to end with that video because it kind of brings together all that we've talked about today. Um, and my husband and I have produced several videos like that. And you can find them on my website at AngelaTucker.com and go to the film section. Um, because it's so important for us to share family stories, true stories, because there is so much, there's so much complexity and nuance within every story that there isn't a single answer for every situation. But with Emily being an, an Asian adoptee and having that deep understanding of what it means to grow up not having representation, um, with Bruce being a Black father and them adopting within the Black community, there were so many pieces of the historical elements that we've touched on um, that I felt, I feel like this is a, and, and then the ends of it being both an inclusive adoption when we think about that model of openness, those four quadrants, they are inclusive. And then there are times when Nico's birth mom, Brianne, uh, goes away for a long time and they don't hear from her, in which case they move over to that spirit of openness because they are still talking about her all the time. They have pictures of her. She's still part of their family. They just may not see her for a little while. Uh, and and both being in both of those quadrants are the best possible thing, especially when the kid knows why that change has happened, why they're not seeing them anymore at this time. So I want to um, kind of wrap up with that and offer a chance for some final questions of me, and then um, and then we'll 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 finish. Please ask any. Wow, Angela, I feel like we all have so much more to learn from you. So I will definitely be reaching out so we can get parts two and three of this seminar. That'd be great. Hosted. Yeah. So part two is is very interactive. So I would love to do. We could talk about this, but not necessarily this webinar because I like to webinar format. So I like to have breakout groups, but we talk okay. about important things, how to respond in a positive and empowering way to the inevitable intrusive questions that happen when you're a transracial family. Um, yeah. And then part three is uh, a panel, transracial adoptee panel. So I have some of my young youth that are 12, 13, 14, who really want to share. And I've kind of helped them learn how to share what parts of their story they want to share and why. Um, so it's not exploitative. And then I have some adult transracial adoptees sharing just so that we hear other perspectives. Because those are the keys for me is knowing that we don't know it all. We can't learn all there is to know about the history of white supremacy with its role in child welfare, but that we can become more aware when it happens. 
and having some strategic responses ready. And then to understand that, um, to listen to the experiences of adoptees who've gone through this and really believe what they say. And so that last piece is, is key to kind of bringing it all together. Absolutely. Um, any, until we can meet again, any social media groups or websites that you can recommend? Yeah, um, there's a lot. I have, I don't think I have a resources section, but if you go to Harlow's Monkey, um, Jaron Kim is a Korean transnational adoptee and she has a great resources section on her website. I don't know if it's harlowsmonkey.com. It might not be, but I would type in Harlow's Monkey and then Jaron Kim, J-A-E-R-A-N Kim. Um, she has a lot of resources, books and um, videos. And in terms of social media, the hashtag adoptee voices is really awesome. And you'll find other adoptees. I have done a podcast called The Adoptee Next Door, which features not just transracial adoptees, but um, from there, listening to all my guests, folks can find more of their social media and their content that they're putting out. Um, what about books for children? Anything um, stand out to you there for transracial adoptees? I just, I loved, so Amanda, who, Amanda Wolston is the author of The Declassified Adoptee. She just had a really great piece that she posted on Instagram at Amanda TDA is her handle. But it was a, a an awesome retort a little bit to when people ask for specifically like adoption related children's books that she's like, you can put transracial adoption in any book. Like you can have further conversations with your kids about kids books all the time. Just pick one up and and when the book talks about the mom figure, like stop and ask your child, like what would this look like if it was a birth mom? You know, um, so she just did a series and I put this on my Instagram as well. I think I have a, a section called Q and A. And I just posted her a whole bunch of uh, screenshots from hers where right. she's like, this is how we can talk to all of our kids about adoption, no matter what children's book we're reading. And I loved that. Brilliant. Brilliant. Um, I'm going to, if you have maybe 10 more minutes to hang out, Angela, I'm going to have Lindsay walk everyone through finding their certificate today okay, sure. so that yeah. we can honor everyone's time. And if people need to go, they can go. Sure. Wendy, Lindsay was, are you, are you better, Lindsay? She was saying she was <laughs> sobbing through that last video. <laughs> yes, I'm a crier. I cry at everything. So I was like sitting here sobbing through that whole last video. Okay. So here's today's verification code. It is Angela with a capital A. Let that hang out for a second. And then 
To get your certificate today, you will go back to your dashboard to today's class. Your webinar box should have a green check. Down here, you'll type in your verification code and submit. And get your pop-up that it worked. Please take the time to fill out the survey. Do not follow my very brief example. Yes, please to. give us feedback, friends. That helps us when we're applying for funding. And after today, I am determined to get Angela here in person for part two. So give us some great feedback um, and we'll, we'll make this happen. Question 10, ask for any thoughts and feedback you might have for Angela on this class. She, I believe, is looking very forward to reading your input and your thoughts. Yeah. So once you're done, hit finish. Oh, it says I skipped and something. Being in person would be so cool because, uh, well, we could do this online as well, but one of my mentees, the mentee who's a 13-year-old Ethiopian adoptee who I shared the story at the top of the hour about she hearing her friends' parents talk about how to act in a store. Um, yes. She lives in Colorado, so I know she would <gasps> love to join. Oh, that would be awesome. Yeah, so. Awesome, can... okay. Lindsay, people are asking, how do they get back to their dashboard, first of all? So just log back in to the learning source and select dashboard, and then find today's class listed and click on the title and it's gonna bring you right back to this page. So you're shooting to have four green check marks here on yes. the left side. So here once you've mind. completed the survey, you have to click this view or print your certificate button. Um, once you do, it'll pop up. You don't have to save it right then. So now I have my four green check marks. All of your certificates are stored on your dashboard in the classroom. So you can always go to dashboard and select transcript achievements up here. And any certificate you've earned is listed. So like I'm scrolling, here's today's certificate for me. And you can click the viewer print certificate under the class there. Um, and from that page, you can also save it as a PDF. Perfect. Thank you, Lindsay. And please try to do that in the next few days because this will go on demand within about a week. And as of that time, it will show your certificate as having watched it on demand. So, and we can't change it after that. So that is the end of class for today. Angela, thank you so, so much. I'm so excited that we get to continue to learn from you. Yes. Um,